The text for our first Sunday in the perfect Christmas party is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. This is God's word. And thank you everyone for joining us again for our online service. Uh, If you haven't met me, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor at Cross of Life. We're thankful for all of you who have joined us. If you haven't already, make sure you let everyone know that you're here by putting a message in the chat box. We want to encourage each other as we're obviously socially distanced to the max, basically, right now for these four weeks. Um, We're thankful for those of you who are joining us and for the chance to give you this amazing message of gospel as we start our Advent series of the church year. Uh, You may not know the word Advent, uh, but it is just a carryover from the Latin word advenio, uh, which literally means to come towards. Advent is the season of the church year that looks forward to Christmas, to that time when God comes towards us, when God in Jesus Christ makes himself human to be one of us for all of us. So we look for that coming in the season of Advent. And that's why we have the Advent wreath. Uh, you may have seen one of these before. Uh, the four candles around the white candle in the middle represent the four Sundays in the season of Advent. The white candle gets lit on Christmas as the Christ child candle. And so as we go through our sermon series for these four weeks, we want to sort of tie the theme of our series to the Advent wreath, maybe something that you even have in your home and that you can remember this week and for the rest of this month uh, coming up as we study looking forward to Christmas. The first of these candles is called the prophecy candle. It reminds us that the story of Christmas was something that was completely planned by God in advance. And then he told us about it through the prophets for hundreds, even thousands of years before any of this actually came to pass. So our Advent series for this year is called The Perfect Christmas Party. And the reason we picked this theme is because we knew that Regardless of whatever whatever lockdowns may or may not be in place on Christmas, Christmas parties were necessarily going to look different this year. And maybe you're one of those people who is really disappointed in that. If you're one of those people, let us know in the chat box. We'd love to be the people who you vent to about the fact that you can't put together the awesome Christmas party you normally go to. And if you're one of those people who's maybe a little bit more of an introvert and you're kind of happy there aren't Christmas parties this year, you're not going to put anything in the chat box anyways. So no need. Uh, We know introverts generally don't like chat boxes. Um, I'm one of those people. I'm not totally excited about Christmas parties all the time, um, but I do miss the festive nature of looking forward to Christmas. And so I need this kind of go back to the classic Christmas series um, to help my heart prepare for Christmas. And I think many of you are like me as well. If you're a party planner, you know that there's a lot that goes into a perfect party. You have to have the food right. You have to have the guest list right. You have to have the right location. You have to have good decorations. You got to pick a good time for everyone to be there. And it's really hard. It's really hard to get all those elements right. And if one of those elements is off, it can ruin the rest of all the other good stuff that you did. But that moment when you're at a Christmas party and everything's right, 
like the food comes out warm. People that you love are having lively, happy conversation. The kids haven't broken anything yet. It's a great feeling, isn't it? God put together the perfect Christmas party for us. Everything had to be right and God made it happen. And so in this series, we're going to walk through the different elements of the perfect Christmas party that God planned for us over 2000 years ago that gave us the greatest gift we could have ever received. And the first of those elements is the time. I don't know about you, but I find it increasingly hard to find the time. It's hard to get everybody on the same page. And I think it's a product of our culture. I mean, to some extent, you know, earlier in a former generation, everybody basically worked nine to five. They were home for dinner. They were free in the evening. And so if you wanted to get together or you wanted to put together a church function or a party, it's pretty easy to know when people were free. But that's not the world we live in anymore, is it? I think of my life group. Uh, My life group of six people who love to get gathered together, but very rarely have all six of us there at the same time. My life group, those six people, all have completely different job situations. One of us makes his own schedule. Another one of us works mostly mornings and afternoons, kind of the typical work schedule. Another one works mostly evenings. Another one works shift work. Another one works multiple jobs. And another one is still in school and working (laughs) part-time. It's really hard to get everyone together because our lives have just become asynchronous. They're not all happening at the same time. And so finding the time is really difficult. The Bible tells us that the story of Christmas happened when the set time had fully come. So how did God pick that time? I mean, this is something far more important than like getting together for a social evening of drinks and fellowship. This is the salvation of the world that he's planning How does he pick this time? Well, I'm sure you can look at some external factors. Uh, The Pax Romana and the Roman Empire allowed that there were no wars happening at that time. It also meant that there was an extensive road system through the empire that would later allow the spread of the gospel as the apostles went out to the Mediterranean world. And there was even a postal system in place. So guys like the apostle Paul and Peter could write letters to congregations whom they were working with. And those letters are actually the scriptures that we still read today. In fact, this letter, Galatians, was written by Paul to a congregation that he was not with. And you could put on top of that, that Caesar Augustus had just issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, which meant that little Mary, teenage Mary, needed to get her pregnant self from Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because her husband-to-be belonged to the house and line of David. All those external factors, of course, were coming together. But I wonder if there was another level to this for God. Think back across the history of the world that the scriptures reveal to us. And think about the amount of time that God let pass between promises and fulfillment of promises. When he came to Noah and told Noah to build an ark because a flood was going to cover the world He waited 120 years to make good on that promise. When he came to Abraham, who was 75 years old, and his wife Sarai, 65 years old, and said, you're going to have a son in your old age. He waited another 25 years 
to make good on that promise. When the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, God let them be enslaved for 430 years before bringing them out of slavery. Then when they got out of slavery, they were in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the promised land. When they were in the promised land and eventually got overtaken by the Babylonian empire, God let them be in exile for 70 years before bringing them back. And there were 350 years between the time the last prophet spoke of the coming of the Messiah and the actual moment when Jesus was born. Those are long periods of time. I mean, some of you aren't even 30 years old. And some of you, you don't even know who your ancestors were who lived 120 years ago, much less 350 or 430 years ago. Those are long periods of time. So why does God wait that long? Why does he set the set time so far from the time he makes the promise? That's what Eve wondered. You remember Adam and Eve, the first two people, after they fell into sin, God made the first promise of a savior. He said, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And Eve thought that was going to happen with the next child she had. Literally the Hebrew words that she says when her son Cain is born are, I have brought forth a man, the Lord. It seems that Eve thought the promise was going to happen right away. The Messiah was going to come and crush the head of the serpent, but she had thousands of years to wait. Why? Well, I wonder if it was just so that God could prove that it was him who was behind it the whole time. Human beings, we make a lot of plans, make short-term plans, long-term plans. But the idea of making a plan that could endure past the end of our life is basically a pipe dream. We might be able to train our children to have a certain set of values or to carry on the family business or something like this. But eventually that starts to whittle away and culture influences our family. And eventually our plans, well, they don't always stay together. But God's plans, plans that stayed intact for thousands of years, Plans that iterated themselves in prophecies and types of Christ's pointing forward to the coming of one who would be one of us and yet God for all of us. That's a plan only God can put into place. And so think about this. When someone that you value takes the time to plan something for you, maybe it's a beautiful night out, or maybe you remember how he proposed to you, Or maybe it's the vacation you're looking forward to when this whole COVID thing is done. When someone takes the time to plan something for you, to think about you and to take time to put time into that plan makes you feel so special. How much more than when God who created all of this, sustains all of it, puts together a plan that moves heaven and earth in order to give you the greatest gift, better than a night out or a vacation in a warm climate, but salvation from your sins. What a powerful plan God put together when the set time had fully come. And so when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. The son of a duck is a duck. The son of a dog is a dog and the son of God is God. That's who Jesus was. 
Sometimes I think people separate God the Son, Jesus Christ, from God the Father. They'll say things like, God is like this, but Jesus is like this. Or I prefer to listen to Jesus and not so much God. But that's an improper way of talking about the relationship that Jesus and the Father have. Jesus would say they are one. That's what John wrote to us in his gospel. They have the closest relationship. Everything that God the Father is, Jesus Christ the Son is. And while they are distinct, definitely, they are also unified in the mystery of the Trinity. And so everything that God has done, everything that God has planned, everything that God has said, he has done through Jesus. And that should totally humble you and also completely empower you. Because God having to send his son into the world to pay for your sin is a high price. Your sin must be awfully bad if the only thing that can pay for it is the death of the son of God. But it should also give you this confidence that the love and commitment that God has to you is so great that he would be willing to give up his son for you. And so God sent his son. The Bible tells us in Colossians 2 that the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form in Christ. Everything that God is seen face to face in the person of Jesus. Everything that God is received in his body and blood in the Lord's Supper every week. All that God is given to you in Jesus. But that's not all Jesus was. Paul tells us he was also born of a woman. Just like I was born of a woman and you were born of a woman, Jesus was born of a woman, fully human in every way. I've been thinking about this a lot as we get closer to Christmas. Most of you know I have an 18-month-old daughter and a three-month-old daughter. And did you realize that Jesus was three months old and 18 months old once? (laughs) A little infant in the manger, he didn't just boom, become a 12-year-old, and then boom, become a 30-year-old. Like he lived an entire childhood, an entire teenage years. He moved into adulthood. As a three-month-old, he couldn't dress himself. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't clean up after himself. And all this, even though three months before that, He had given everyone their daily bread. And he had clothed the lilies of the field in finer splendor than Solomon and would clothe all of his his children in that same splendor. And he wasn't in the business of being cleaned up by his mother, but in the business of cleaning up our messes. And then Jesus was an 18-month-old. He had trouble communicating what he needed to his parents. He would run and trip and scrape his knee. He'd have to obey his parents when his parents told him it was time for bed. And all this, even though 18 months earlier, he was the word made a word of God. He spoke for God. When God spoke, it was Jesus speaking. And he didn't run and fall and trip or scrape his knee. He was the one who made people's feet secure. And yes, he obeyed his heavenly father, but his heavenly father was perfect. Not earthly parents who are working on being first-time parents. And if any of you are parents, you know exactly what first-time parents are like. 
And before that, he did not have to even sleep in the first place. He never slumbered nor slept, but then he contained himself in humanity. He wrapped himself up in limits. He, for the first time in his existence, felt things like frustration and annoyance and pain and betrayal, all these things that you have experienced. The Bible tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. The Bible tells us in another place, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So whatever you've gone through in your life, Jesus gets it. He's been there. He's felt it. Because he was not only God's son, but he was also born of a woman. 100% God and 100% man. And he absolutely needed to be. Because to be perfect, to make up for your sins, he needed to be God. But in order to die, he needed to be human. And so God became flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was born under the law to redeem those under the law. In my house, uh, we have some rules. Uh, One of those is bedtime for my daughters. But it turns out I don't have to go to bed when it's bedtime for them. That's because I made the rules. I made the law, if you will. And in the same way, God who put the Ten Commandments on humanity is not beholden to those Ten Commandments. He does not have to follow them. He's not under those rules. And so when we, we sinned against that law, when we incurred a debt to God against that law, God had to go under that law in order to make up for our sin. And so he was born human under the law in order to redeem those under the law, to redeem us. You can think of it like a, a cosmic arcade game, right? Like Jesus doesn't have to go to the cosmic arcade, but he does. And he plays every game absolutely perfectly to get enough tickets so that he can buy you off the shelf and take you home with him. He redeems you who are under the law because he himself perfectly obeyed every one of God's commands under the law. And he did all of that, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, if that doesn't just take your breath away, you might be North American. See, when we think of adoption as North Americans, we very often think of like a child or maybe an infant being brought into a new family because their parents are unable to take care of them. And that's a beautiful thing, but that's not what the Apostle Paul's original readers would have thought of when he talked about adoption. Adoption in the first century Roman world was something that almost never happened to children. In fact, it almost always happened to adults. It was a process by which a head of a household who had a large estate, a bunch of property, would bring one of his household slaves or servants into his family in order to pass on his estate to that man. And so that's what Paul's readers would have thought of when they thought of adoption. But it only happened under three important circumstances. The first of those was that it was only male slaves who would be adopted. Uh, In Roman society, women could not inherit the estate of the head of their household. And so only male slaves would be brought into the family. And it would only happen if there wasn't a son. 
Uh, If a father had a son to pass on his estate to, he didn't need to adopt a child into his family or excuse me, a man into his family. And then finally, he would only adopt the best slave, the one who he felt was the most faithful, the one who represented him and his family best, who would manage the estate well. And so when God says that we are adopted into sonship, doesn't that just blow your mind? I mean, think about this. Only male slaves were allowed to be adopted. But God says all of us have been adopted. And I don't want you to think of this in terms of men and women for a moment. Just think of it in terms of being biologically incapable of being something else. Like like if you were a daughter in your father's house and you were the perfect daughter and you were faithful and you were patient and you never spoke back to your father and you were intelligent and capable of managing things, it didn't matter. No matter how good you were, no matter how faithful you were, if you were born a daughter, you had no chance of inheriting the estate. The same thing is true for us in our sin. Every one of us was born separate from God, born with a sinful nature, a rebellious nature against God. And there is nothing that we can do about it. No matter how good we are, no matter how faithful we are, no matter how capable or intelligent we are, We cannot overcome the sin that we were born with. But then God says he adopts us into sonship. He adopts us into a status that we could never have earned for ourselves. And he brings us into that status, not because we have been faithful, but because he is gracious. And then think about this. Normal adoption in the Roman world would have been only if there was no son But God had a son. He had his son, Jesus Christ, who was sharing all of his father's inheritance. And if you had that situation in the Roman world, to adopt a child into your family would actually be at the expense of your son who was born into your family. Because now you would have to split the inheritance among multiple sons. But that's exactly what God did. At the expense of his son, at the very life of his son, he brought you into his family as sons. In the parable of the two sons, the prodigal son, as it's sometimes known, the older son gets indignant when the younger son comes back and the father is spending his money and the fattened calf on that younger son because the older son understands that everything that the father has is really eventually going to be his inheritance. And so every dollar, every resource that his father spends is taking away from his resources at the end of his father's life. And yet Jesus is nothing like that. When his father says, we are going to spend all of our resources to bring them in, Jesus willingly goes. And then finally, he would only adopt the best slave, the most faithful, the most capable. And you and I know we are not that. There are many things that we should have done in our life that we have left undone. Many ways that we have brought evil into the world. We are not the most capable. We are not the most faithful. We are not the most good. And we're very far from even close to the top of that list. And yet God says that he has adopted us into sonship. Because of the one who came, his son born of woman under the law to redeem those under the law. And so the result, he says, is that you are his sons. And because you are his sons, 
God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. You're a son right now, not in the future, not only if you behave, not only if you're capable or faithful, you are a son right now by your baptism, brought into God's family with God's name put on you like a last name of an adopted person. And that means you have unrestricted access to the father. If a, if a king has a son, there are many people who want things from the king, but his son has unrestricted access to those things. Only a king's son can come into his bedroom in the middle of the night and ask for a glass of water and know that his father will get up and give it to him. That's the kind of access you have. That word Abba is the Aramaic word for daddy, we might say, or a term of endearment for a father. We have that same relationship with the God of the universe because the one who was his son became one of us for all of us to redeem us under the law. And so you can pray with that boldness and know that you will be heard. And so then Paul finishes the text this way. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. What is an heir? It's someone who receives all of the resources of a person when they die. And when God's son, who was one with God, the father gave up his life, when he died, all of his resources were transferred to you as an inheritance. All of his grace all of his love, all of his acknowledgement, all of the angels, all of his providence was transferred to you. But it goes one step further because when Jesus died, he did not stay dead. He came back to life. And so we don't look back at him as a sacrifice that happened one time so we can have a whole bunch of resources, but as our brother who lives and who enjoys those resources with us and uses them by his power for our good every day. We are no longer slaves. We are sons and heirs. And that inheritance will come to its full fruition one day. As the apostle Peter tells us in his great mercy, he, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That perfect inheritance is waiting for you because when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that you might receive adoption to sonship. God be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us that adoption through our baptism that makes us one of, our, of your family. Help us to regard our brother Jesus who gave up his resources for us as the gracious one who saves us. By faith, let us remember what is promised to us as an inheritance. And as we go through this time where things are difficult or we can't be together, remind us that that inheritance is going to be enjoyed by all of us together that we may not be together right now. We will be with you and Jesus forever in heaven. We ask these things in your name. Amen.